I'd like you to take your Bibles again, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning, Acts chapter 7. And I'm going to read at the end of this chapter from Acts chapter uh, 7, verse 54 to the end. This is the third Sunday that we've spent with uh, Stephen, uh, the first martyr of the church, and uh, he has been on trial. He's finished his defense statement, and now here he is um, uh, going to be condemned to death and be stoned. So um, Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. There's a name in our house that almost always elicits a cheer when it is mentioned, and the name is uh, someone you might not know, but our daughters have become fans of her in recent years. The name is Lady Jane Grey. We learned about Jane Grey in a book uh, that Steve Nichols wrote for children called Church History ABCs. Uh, Jane Grey, here's why you may have never heard of her. She lived 400 years ago. Jane Grey was a nephew of King Henry VIII. And when King King Henry VIII died, his son Edward became king. Uh, And then when Edward died, the next person who should have taken the throne of England was Mary. But Mary was a devout Catholic, and some of the the, uh, uh, advisors to the throne were concerned about what Mary would do to the growing Protestant movement in Great Britain. So they took Henry's niece, Jane Grey, and they put her on the throne. She was queen for nine days. And at the end of the nine-day period, Mary's army marched into uh, the palace, arrested Jane Grey. She was tried for treason, and then she was executed. Before she died, she wrote in her Bible that she gave to her sister, uh, among other things, she wrote this line, take up your cross and follow your master Christ. Now it turns out that those who were afraid of what Mary would do when she became queen were on to something. Mary hated Protestantism. And she hated the Protestant message, and she devoted herself to eradicating Protestantism from England. Her beef was not just with the theology of Protestantism, uh, This is not one of their shining moments, but the Protestant clerics had given Henry VIII excuse, reason to divorce his wife, Mary's mother. And she blamed the Protestants for her mother's sorry, sad end of life. Uh, She had thousands, thousands of Protestants arrested and executed in Great Britain. 
Now, among them, you, you might know a couple of them. There's, there's tremendous stories of these men and women who died uh, for their faith in Jesus Christ. And two of them, you might know, at least you've heard maybe a little bit about one of the lines that one of them said. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, two old names that are worth knowing too. Hugh Latimer was a great preacher. He was the Bishop of Worcester. And uh, uh, he actually resigned his bishopric because he was frustrated with how slow the changes were, were coming over the church. Um, Nicholas Ridley converted to Protestantism when he was a student in Cambridge. He was a bishop of Rochester. He was part of the original committee that wrote the English Book of Common Prayer. Faithful follower of Christ. Uh, he and Hugh Latimer were arrested and they were both sentenced to die by burning at the stake on October 16, 1555. So just last month plus a few hundred years. Uh, this is what Latimer said to Ridley. This is probably, if you've heard of them, you've probably heard this line that Latimer said. As they were being tied to the stake and the flames were being lit, Latimer turned to his friend and said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. Play the man. Master Ridley. That's the line. Ray Bradbury quoted it in Fahrenheit 451. Master Ridley, play the man. Uh, the pain involved at burning at the stake varies. It varies a lot based on the skill of the person who, who, who lays the, the, the wood and uh, their level of cruelty. Sometimes to show mercy to some, they would actually give you a necklace and put a little bag of gunpowder uh, and tie it to the, the, the string necklace so that the flames would eventually ignite the gunpowder and that was the fastest way to die if you were being burned at the stake. Sometimes if the wood was green, you would actually uh, uh, suffocate to death before the flames got to you because the smoke would just uh, uh, cause you to, to pass out. I suppose that would be another semi-merciful way to die. In the case of Nicholas Ridley, uh, it was either a cruel or a stupid person who set up the fire because they didn't lay the logs, the wood, high enough and Ridley stood there tied to his stake while his legs were on fire for a long time before he died. Play the man, Master Ridley. Now, how did these men do it? How did they meet death like this? Ready, willing, able to play the man. They are among the 70 million, estimated 70 million martyrs uh, of Jesus Christ who've been killed since he died and rose again. 70 million followers of Christ. And there are horrific stories. You've read probably some of them of men and women and children all of these stories can be traced back to this one that we just read about Stephen here in Acts chapter 7. The, the, first, the first one to give his life for his testimony for Jesus Christ. I divided Stephen's story in the book of Acts into three scenes. We looked a couple weeks ago at his, his uh, testimony and his arrest. He was arrested for blasphemy against the temple and against the law. Then we looked at his defense, this long sermon, the longest sermon by twice as any other sermon in the book of Acts that he delivered in Acts 7 where he defended himself. Now we're going to look at their response to his defense, the Sanhedrin, and, and um, what happened to him. And I want to look at this story today of martyrdom 
uh, I want to show you how Stephen fates his death, not because I believe that there's anybody in this room who's in imminent danger of being executed for your faith in Christ. I don't think this is going to happen to anybody here this week. The same could not be said for many, many of our brothers and sisters around the world. There are uh, fellow believers who read this passage knowing that this could be the week that this happens to them. I don't want you to look at this passage for that reason. That's not where we're we're going through it. But I, I want to read it because I know that every single one of us in this room need more courage because sometime this week, two or three times probably, you're going to have an opportunity to represent Jesus Christ at work or at school. If, if Stephen can die like this and Latimer and Ridley can die playing the man, where's your courage going to come from? This, this story is, is easy to uh, uh, take apart. We're going to look, first of all, at, at what Stephen saw, and then we're going to look at how what Stephen saw changed him. I'm not unaware, as we look at this story, that there are some of you this morning who have your heart and mind set on not living forever in the United States, but going overseas to some place where Christ's name has not been named. You're going to go to a country where there's not easy medical care for your kids. You're maybe going to go to a country where the government is not very stable. Or you're going to go to a a place where naming Christ's name is dangerous. How are you going to have the courage to go? I think it's wrapped up in what Stephen saw and how what he saw changed him. This is a Christ-soaked, John Stott says, this is a Christ-soaked passage. Stephen sees Jesus and then he speaks three times. One of them is about Jesus and the last two are addressed to uh, Jesus. So let's look here, what he saw and how it changed him. Stephen has made this speech before the Sanhedrin. He's, he's answering the charge against him that he's a blasphemer. He reviewed Israel's history. Remember, we went through that in chapter 7. He went over Israel's history. It was not a flattering telling of Israel's story. He, he, he condemns them for, for consistently rejecting God and God's law, and he just nails them. You stiff-necked people. Uh, Uh, Verse 51, did you see that? Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Why is that word still there? Because he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 4. The Israelites that God rescued from Egypt, they had uncircumcised hearts and ears. And they're still, their descendants are still, they have this problem. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? This is some serious, I mean, he's very harshly indicting them. This is not the time for a preacher to take an offering after you say this. Well, they're raging at him. They're very uh, unhappy. And the conclusion of the sermon makes things worse. I don't think Stephen planned this conclusion. The conclusion of his sermon came extemporaneously as God opened the heavens for him. Stephen would have been in a building, they were inside, there would have been a roof, but in in a miraculous way, he sees through the roof, and God opens the heavens and and, uh, gives Stephen the perfect conclusion to his sermon. Stephen looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Now, that phrase deserves to be unpacked a little bit, but I'm interested actually for a moment in what it says in verse 55. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. How many times, how many times in this text does Stephen praise, or Luke praise Stephen for his character? Do you remember this? He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's um, uh, full of wisdom. He is uh, 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 full of, of grace. Over and over again, Luke praises his character. I think Stephen receives more commendations than almost anybody else in the book of Acts. Now, why is that? Well, a number of reasons I think that Luke mentions it here. It provides a good contrast between Stephen and the Sanhedrin, right? They're raging. They're full of rage. They're so angry. And he's full of the Holy Spirit. I think this passage, though, emphasizes Stephen's character again to show us that suffering in Stephen's life here is not a sign of God's abandonment. It's not a sign that God has left him or that somehow Stephen is full of this malicious evil so that the suffering is coming, that he deserves it. Oh, the church needs to know that. Especially this, this church, because they're going to suffer. They're going to suffer a lot. They're going to suffer as representatives of Jesus Christ, and they needed to know that when that suffering comes, it's not because God has abandoned them. In fact, when they suffer for Christ's sake, they will be, in many instances, this will be the greatest opportunity they'll have ever in their whole lives to represent Jesus. This is a good word. We have this assurance in the New Testament. I talked about this three weeks in a row as we've talked about Stephen's story. God uses suffering. God makes suffering the servant of his people. Even if your suffering is is part of God's discipline, it's still our servant. God makes suffering uh, the servant of his his people. How, how, How foolish, how ignorant of God's ways we would be without suffering. I have a book on my shelf, and it's called My God is True, Lessons Learned Along Cancer's Dark Road. It's a good book. No one has ever written a book called My God is True, Lessons Learned on the Cruise's Smooth Sailing. (laughs) You don't grow, you don't learn very much on a smooth sailing cruise. God opens up the sky and Stephen sees the glory of God and Jesus is standing there at his right hand. Now, how is it possible to see the glory of God? Actually, this this passage helps us understand what glory is. What is, when the Bible talks about the glory of God, what is it? Glory is the visible manifestation of God's holiness. God has no body, he has no spirit, so when, uh, how can he be seen? God's glory is his greatness made manifest, made visible. His holiness, his supremacy, his uh, uh, excellence made visible. His invisible attributes made visible. That's what glory is in the Bible. And most often it's some sort of shining presence. Who in the Bible saw God's glory? Moses. One of the most important passages in the Bible, Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God, Oh God, show me your glory. God says, No one can see my face and live. But uh, in, in kindness to Moses, he hides him in a, in a, at a cleft, and, and he passes by, and Moses is able to look at the trailing uh, brilliance of God's glory. 
Isaiah saw God's glory. In Isaiah chapter 6, he went into the temple and he saw in this vision God high and lifted up on a throne. His train filled the temple. There was clouds and smoke inside. And this God who he sees speaks, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, will will I do? Will you send me? Seeing God's glory like this made Isaiah want in on whatever that God was doing. Now Stephen is included in this very small group of people who see God's glory. And what's striking in this passage, and and no one else has seen this before, or at least mentioned in their visions of God, is Jesus is there. And he's standing at his right side. Now this is going to sound very strange to you. What's going to sound strange to you is there is a lot of... (laughs) Ink spilled in commentaries in the book of Acts, wondering why Jesus is standing here and not sitting. Hmm. Actually, that, the whole discussion makes me think of VeggieTales. If you're of my generation, this will mean something to you. If not, just let it go. But there's this one scene in a classic VeggieTales uh, clip. I guess it's not my generation, it's my children's generation. Anyway, uh, Bob the Tomato is sitting down front of a big auditorium. And someone says, sit down up there. And Bob says, I am sitting. He's a tomato. He's short and fat and round, right? And then for a few minutes, Bob goes, this is standing, this is sitting, this is standing. And you, well, some of you appreciate that. Why does the passage say Jesus is standing and not sitting? Now, the important thing is that in the Old Testament, the greatest prophecy about Jesus being in God's presence mentions that he sits in heaven, why is he standing? Psalm 110.1, I think I wrote it down on the sheet, your note sheet. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The book of Hebrews makes a big deal of this. Jesus finished his work and then he sat down. Now, why is he standing in heaven? Well, there's two answers that I think seem reasonable to me. Some people think that Jesus is standing to intercede before his father. He's left the, the, the seated position he was in, and he stands before his father, and he says, Oh, Father, Stephen is being tested like he never has in his life. Will you show him kindness? Strengthen him for this. Give him the wisdom that he needs. Give him the courage and help that he needs. So maybe Stephen is sta- or Jesus is standing to intercede for Stephen. Maybe, though, Jesus is standing to welcome Stephen home. The Lord Jesus, one commentator said, stands to welcome every martyr home. Now, the members of the Sanhedrin, they don't care what uh, Stephen sees Jesus doing. They're infuriated with this. Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they covered their ears, the text says. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him. You cover your ears in this culture to keep you from hearing blasphemy. And what Stephen says sounds very similar to blasphemy that they thought they had heard before from the Lord Jesus. In fact, I, I, I printed out a couple of verses from Mark chapter 14. Look what it says, verse 61. Again, the high priest, when Jesus is on trial, asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more testimony, any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Same thing is happening to Stephen. Jesus says, someday you're going to see me at the right hand of God. Stephen says, I see Jesus at the right hand of God. And it's blasphemy according to the Sanhedrin. And they want to kill them both. They don't want to hear this because it means that if Jesus is at the right hand of God, this means that he has access to God that they don't have. Do you remember, the trial is about Stephen and his blasphemy against the temple. The temple, they think, is the only place where we have access to God. That's where God and human beings meet, is in the temple. And it's under their control. And if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go through the priests in the temple to God. But if Jesus is there with God right now, that means you don't need the temple and you don't need a priest. He's the mediator. And if Jesus is there, what's the temple but a fading, empty, pointless building? So this vision of the glory of God and Jesus' petition, or Jesus' position, excuse me, next to him, actually continues a theme that we found in the book of Acts all the way through. I wonder, I wonder if you've noticed it. The, the exaltation and the supremacy of Jesus dominates these first several chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, he ascends into heaven. Has anybody ever ascended into heaven like that. Then in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are witnesses of it. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Exalting Jesus. In chapter 3, it's by the name of Jesus that the, the uh, a lame man is raised so that he can stand and walk. And Peter says that Jesus is the prophet that Moses said would come. He's been received into heaven. He's the one that through whom God is going to bring all that he promised. In chapter 4, it's Jesus' name that is the name under heaven given among men whereby everybody must be saved. And in chapter 5, Peter says to the Sanhedrin, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of their sins. It's a constant theme in the preaching in the book of Acts, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I want you to see it here. I want to mention it this morning because I wonder sometimes if we miss that or if we obscure it a little bit. See, we are concerned that people hear about the forgiveness of sins that's made possible through the death of Jesus on the cross. That's, so we have this call, come, be forgiven. God, you can be reconciled to God through the gift of his son who offered his life on the cross for us. You have to hear that message and, and believe it. That's a good thing to say. We want to announce that to everybody. But you notice here, when the apostles announced that message, they were bold. In fact, they seem to start here with this idea that the reason that Jesus is worthy of your trust and your confidence to forgive your sins is because he is the exalted Savior at God's right hand. It's, it's, he, he's there and he can save anyone who turns 
to him. He's the one who has been appointed, raised, and appointed by God at his right hand. He is supremely excellent in every way. He's central. He's great. He's sovereign. He's exalted. He's appointed by God to rescue anyone who turns to him. And the reason you can trust in him with, with great confidence is because of this exaltation. Now, I wonder sometimes if the gospel we present at the cost of his exaltation emphasizes his suffering see the jesus that we believe in is not hanging on a cross still in suffering he is exalted in heaven and worthy of our highest confidence when you talk to people about jesus do you mention that do you mention how he is worthy of their trust and confidence, how he's the one with whom they will have to do. He is both Lord and Savior. I think it's mentioned here in this passage because seeing the exalted Christ is a compelling vision. In fact, it's a transformative vision. This is what we're after as followers of Jesus Christ. We want to see Oh, we'll talk about the word see in a minute. We want to see the exalted Christ. Tim Keller wrote this in his new book on prayer. He said, unless you learn to behold the glory of Christ, you are not actually living a true Christian life in this world. It's a strong statement. It's an odd statement, too, because we don't see like Stephen saw, but we do see the Bible talks about that. We fix our eyes on him. Well, that's strange. The strange intersection continues uh, when we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I printed that out. I think it's on the other side of your yellow sheet if you want to look at it here. Uh, there's a seeing image that continues all the way through the New Testament. Paul here, in just context a little bit, is talking about how Moses went up in the mountain of glory and saw God and his face was glowing because he'd seen God in his, seen God's glory and he put a veil over his face. He came down the mountain. The reason he put the veil there too, one, uh, one, people wouldn't be able to look at him because his face is so bright. Secondly, people, well, Moses, he didn't want people to see the fading glory. He's a little embarrassed by that. So, uh, uh, Paul emphasizes though, the brightness of his face. Look what 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we see God's glory, and it transforms us. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. We don't try to trick people into being Christians. We don't try to trick people into coming into church. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see, oh, there that word again, the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is very strange. I don't know anything like it. I'd like to give you an illustration of what Paul is talking about here but I don't think I can. It's very odd. 
What he's saying is that we see the glory of Christ, but we don't see it with our eyes. If our eyes were the instrument with which we see the glory of Christ, Jesus should have come during the YouTube era when everybody had a smartphone and they could video him and you could watch all the miracles on YouTube. But it's not with our eyes that we see. Actually, how do we see? We see through a message that we hear. Is there anything like that? Seeing with your heart. This is a miracle. It's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit takes the message that we hear with our ears, the gospel, and it transforms it into heart vision so that we see the glory of Christ through the heard message. That's very strange, but it's it's an awesome Holy Spirit miracle. Your experience as a follower of Jesus Christ should be hearing the gospel and then seeing through it the glory of Jesus Christ. Stephen saw with his physical eyes, we see with the eyes of our heart. And it's supposed to transform us and make us like Jesus. See, the whole New Testament is an effort to unfold how seeing Jesus changes your life. And this is a message that these men and women, well, they were men here in the Sanhedrin, hated. So the conflict in this passage is about the honor that they're going to give to Jesus, which I think is important to remember because we live in a culture and a world where Jesus is, is somewhat honored by almost everybody. Except for Judaism, Jesus has a role to play in all of the major religions of the world. He's a prophet in Islam. He's a spiritual teacher in Buddhism and Hinduism. uh, Any New Age mystical people can can take Jesus in as a a good spiritual leader and someone who can point the way. Even, you don't have to be a religious person at all to think Jesus was was a good man who, who taught well. The difference here is about the exclusivity with which Stephen makes this claim about Jesus. He is, he is claiming something for Jesus that they do not want, they will not accept. Actually, he's claiming something about Jesus that if you uphold this claim even today, it is offensive. It's off-putting to give this much honor to Jesus. <laughs> if you ever have an opportunity to go to the Eagles Stadium, don't wear a Dallas Cowboys jersey. Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin and he's upholding Jesus (laughs) as worthy of worship and honor at God's right hand. That is not a message that they have any interest in hearing at all. How does Christianity differ from other faiths in the world? We uphold the excellence and magnificence and worthiness of Jesus Christ in a way that is offensive. Now, I mention that because there's, there's a, a thought, a movement, popular. You could read about it in the New York Times or various places. This developing idea that, that Christianity, uh, well, they didn't honor Jesus like they do, like we do today from the beginning. That, that at the beginning, Jesus was the great teacher and then stories were told about him and he became a miracle worker. And then after a few hundred years, the church finally declared that he was Lord and Savior. And there's a development that took a long time to come about. Notice here from the very beginning, Stephen says, oh, he's at God's right hand. It's a story that the church proclaimed and believed from the beginning. 
what he says about Jesus' blasphemy. So they take him out and they stone him. And the action slows down. Stephen wants you to see, uh, Luke wants you to see very clearly what's happening here. The verbs, even uh, their tenses, they slow down the action. They drag him out of the city. They began to stone him. The witnesses, uh, if you were stoned in the Old Testament law, the witnesses to your crime would have to be the first ones to throw the stones. So these false witnesses who've been testifying against Stephen, they take off their coats, they lay them at the feet of Saul. Oh, Luke is really good about introducing these characters. Saul's name is going to be very important for the rest of the, the whole book. Right? And they set these cloaks down. And then Stephen speaks twice. And what Stephen says reveals how his vision of Jesus exalted has changed him. Two ways. First, this vision equips him to die with confidence. To die with confidence. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, why would Jesus, why would seeing Jesus at God's right hand help him to die with confidence, introduce this calm in him when he's being stoned? I think it's because Jesus' presence at God's right hand proves that his promises are true, that he's worthy of our trust, that he really is the resurrection and the life. Hebrews 2 says that human beings for all ages have been held in slavery by their fear of death. Death is cruel. It's a relentless master. It's, it's the consequence that we introduced into this world when we turned from God and disobeyed him. Death itself is a crushing thing. It's being torn apart. It's the destiny of us all. Lest God intervenes. Jesus comes back. Your last moment of life, your body and your spirit will be ripped apart and you will die. What must it have been like for Adam and Eve to be living in a world that they had no fear or no concept of death? As death approaches, all of us will have questions about it. I, the Bible gives us some answers, but it doesn't, it doesn't give us answers to all the particularities. We don't know what to expect, at least not everything. I'm pretty sure it will not be white clouds and robes. I'm pretty sure about that. It's okay that we don't know all of the what's, because as, as Stephen reminds us here, we know the who. We know who will be in charge, who will be providing, who we will see, whose side we want to be on. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, by age, I'm about in the middle of where most of you are here. About half of you are older than I am, half of you are younger than I am. Which means in the the normal course of events here, um, half of you will, will likely die before I will. No one knows when they're going to die. I know that. But chances are that about half of you will die before I will. Maybe as as my capacity as a pastor will be my privilege to be there with you. It's happened a couple times in my pastorate here. I apologize in advance if my face is one of the last ones you see on earth. (laughs) Won't Won't it make the next sight you see all the better? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what is to come. We know the who 
We know the who of what is to come. Don't be afraid. Stephen saw it in advance, and he turned to Christ with, with great confidence. Oh, Lord Jesus, I see you where you are. Receive me. Don't be afraid. Now, now secondly here, what Stephen saw equipped him to forgive with mercy. To forgive with mercy. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's quoting Jesus on the cross, isn't he? He he is more like Jesus in his moment of his death than he was even before here. He's praying for them who are stoning him. Lord, don't make this uh, choice that they're making be so, so that they're no longer objects of your grace. Don't make this the unforgivable sin for them. And at least in one case we know of, God answered Stephen's prayer. Right, Saul, who would very soon have his own encounter with the Lord Jesus. It's, it's because of the magnificence of Jesus that your life is to be suffused with grace and, and mercy. To unforgiveness and bitterness and grudges, like little stones that you, you pick up and you carry and you clutch and you hold on to them. I'm going to hold on to these things, and I'm going to hold them against people, and they're going to be mine. They're, they'll shape you. You cannot, at the same time, be in awe of the glory and depth and wonder of Jesus Christ and hold on to your grudges and your unforgiveness and your bitterness. The two can't exist together. My children... Uh, like to read the books by a man whose name I can't pronounce, but it's Mark Marpurgo, I think, or something like that. He, he writes about uh, animals that do uh, stupendous things, and one of his books is called War Horse. You may recognize the name of that book because a few years ago it was made into a movie by Steven Spielberg. It's about a, a horse that um, goes to battle in World War I, that last great conflict where horses were used in, in abundance. When this movie War Horse, uh, uh, if you read the book in our house, it's a rule. If you read the book in our house that they've made into a movie and the movie passes muster, you can uh, watch the movie. So we watched War Horse together. And there's a scene towards the end of the movie where the horse is riderless. His rider's been shot and is left somewhere. And the horse is frightened and scared. And, and he runs out into the field. And you know how uh, the trench warfare in World War I worked. There were two trenches and in between no man's land and uh, wire, barbed wire all over the area. And the horse runs out into this no man's land and, and uh, picks up barbed wire as he goes and goes and goes. And eventually the, there's enough wrapped around him that it... it, it uh, uh, squeezes tight and brings him down middle of the field and and the soldiers on both sides it's night they're not currently shelling one another they can hear this screaming animal out in the the field so one of the soldiers uh uh, takes a white cloth and he ties it to a a stick and and he holds it up and he waves it waves it waves it so every every sniper on the other side can see him he walks across no man's land and he, he comes to this horse and he sees this horse that's been screaming. And, and he realizes he doesn't have anything to help the horse with. He doesn't have uh, wire cutters at all. And to his surprise, he turns around and there's a German soldier standing next to him, reaching out and handing him a pair of wire cutters. 
These two men, who just a few minutes ago would have, without any thought, shot one another, here they are to take care of this, this horse. And actually, together, they weave through the barbed wire and they cut what needs to be cut and, and free this horse. It's this moment of cooperation in this horrible, bloody, awful conflict. It's, it's this act of compassion that they have toward the horse and for the horse that, that allows them to set aside their animosity. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the greatest act of mercy and compassion and kindness that has ever been done. And if you see it truly and clearly for what it is, it will empower you to set aside your animosity, your bitterness, your unforgiveness. Maybe you're here this morning, if if you're involved in a conflict with somebody, maybe what you need is not so much to learn a little bit more about forgiveness. Maybe you don't need to read more about uh, what 70 times 7 means and the ins and outs. Maybe you need to take another look at the supreme excellence of Jesus. Now, do you understand why we want to see him why this passage is crafted this way it is. I wonder if Saul, who became Paul, didn't have this in mind a little bit when he wrote 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, seeing the glory of God, it transforms us. We see the glory of Christ. We want to be people who are infused with this level of courage and this level of mercy. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, we do so with um, sorrow yet rejoicing. We come before you with sorrow over what happened to this fine man stoning. And it, it reminds us of the 70 million followers of Jesus Christ who had suffered by burning and starvation and exposure and bullets and bombs. Uh, Lord, um, we are mindful of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we have so many easy blessings here in the country in which we live. And there are, are people who are testifying like Stephen, and we're grateful to you for the Holy Spirit who gives courage and grace in those moments. Lord, we we read this passage with sorrow, but we read it also with rejoicing because what Stephen saw is true. Lord Jesus, you are at God's right hand and it fills us with, with joy. Show it to us with the eyes of our heart more and more. May this be the compelling vision of our lives this week so that we can go to work and school with courage for Christ's sake. Do that for us according to your great kindness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.